He is the one and only Chris Hedges. Chris, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Great to see you again. This feels like a portentous moment, doesn't it? Yeah, and a frightening one, uh, which these people don't have any more uh, understanding of where they're headed or what they're doing than they did in Afghanistan, Iraq, or anywhere else. It's short-term weapons procurement. Uh, It is uh, this kind of lust to degrade, if they can, the Russian military. I don't know if they still hold out hopes of overthrowing Putin by their own admission. This war is going to be a long uh, and bloody war of attrition. That uh, is quite uh, acceptable, of course, to the arms manufacturers like Raytheon and and uh, Northrop Grumman, all of whom stocks, by the way, have rocketed up 35 percent. Uh, they, they, made, they feasted off of the Afghan war. That war ended and they found another way to uh, essentially pilfer the state of staggering sums of money. Over a hundred billion dollars has now been uh, directed towards Ukraine uh, in humanitarian and military aid. That's we're, we're getting close to double uh, the uh, annual budget of the State Department, which is 60 billion dollars. Uh, it, it's absolute folly. It's dangerous, of course, uh, because you're flirting with nuclear war, um, endless war. Well, endless wars has become the primary business of the American empire. It's probably the one thing they're good at. They're not good at much else. Uh, but it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I don't think, you know, when we are essentially reduced to agreeing with Henry Kissinger as a voice of sanity, uh, you know, we're all in trouble. Quite so. Uh, now, it's pretty evident to me that Germany did not want to do this, presumably because they're not entirely ignorant of uh, how this will resonate, not least in Russia, but that they were bludgeoned and bullied and yeah. browbeaten and maybe bribed uh, into doing it. Uh, but they've done it now, and their foreign minister has effectively declared war on Russia today in, in the Reichstag. Uh, and uh, the United States, according at least to the media, is going to send the Abrams tank. I'm not sure why. didn't perform particularly well in Syria or in Iraq. Uh, but then I saw that Ukraine will actually have to pay for the Abrams right. tanks that the U.S. is sending. $400 million, which adds up to about $13 million per tank which is quite a lot of money for smoking armor. Uh, but of course, these are all escalatory steps, aren't they? And uh, run the risk of, well, the tanks didn't work. Maybe we'll need to send the aircraft next. Yeah, well, that has been the trajectory since the beginning of this conflict. It's been a constant ratcheting up. Patriot missiles, more sophisticated uh, air defense uh, equipment, uh, et cetera, um, you know, very sophisticated artillery pieces. Uh, th- that has been the trajectory. And, and if this doesn't work, and I don't think it is going to work, uh, then you're right. They, they will reach into their basket to get uh, ever more lethal uh, forms of weaponry. Uh, and, and we're already seeing Ukrainian strikes inside Russia. I, I covered war. I spent 20 years as a war correspondent, I watched how these conflicts have a life of their own. You don't control them. They control 
you. You become essentially their puppet, their pawn. This is true in every war. Uh, I won't go into all the details in the Middle East, but, uh, you know, where we end up, you, and, and, and the longer you're there, uh, the more the kind of, uh, you know, ridiculous contradictions, uh, are essentially embraced. I mean, if you remember, we went into Syria to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, uh, then we armed 500 million dollars to quote unquote the moderate rebels, then we got frightened, so we started bombing the people we'd armed, essentially becoming Assad's de facto air force. I mean, this is, this is what happens the longer these conflicts go on. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, G- German reluctance is, is, are, I think, twofold. One, uh, as you correctly pointed out, it, it, it comes very close to a de facto declaration of war. But of course, this is a U.S. project. But there, Europe's paying the price. The U.K., German industry, inflation, soaring energy prices, everything else. They don't, they don't care. I mean, and, and you do see a certain amount of disquiet among NATO, uh, members because the, 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 the fundamental point to remember is that the U.S. has no plan. There is no uh, end. They, they don't, this was also true in Afghanistan and Iraq. The, the, the only goal is to perpetuate it, but they haven't thought about the consequences and they haven't thought about how to terminate the conflict. Indeed, they don't want to terminate the conflict. You talk about buying these weapons. Remember that about 40% at least of the money that is appropriated for Ukraine goes directly to the U.S. arms manufacturers. This is also true when we give foreign aid to Egypt when we give foreign aid to Israel, $3 billion a year, a, a huge percentage of that is mandated to go towards U.S. weapons manufacturers, and they have to buy their weapons, whether it's the F-16 or anything else. And that's also true with uh, the aid, military aid for Ukraine. Eisenhower did warn us about this, uh, this uh, overweening power even back then in the 1950s, of what he called the military-industrial complex. And it's become a truly gargantuan monster by now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and this is how late empires die, as Arnold Toneby pointed out. It's unchecked, unregulated, unaccountable militarism and military adventurism. Remember, the, the military is responsible, along with the political leadership, for just one military debacle after another, starting with Vietnam, whether it's Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, or anything else. Nobody's ever held accountable. Uh, you know, untold trillions of dollars, I don't know what the final figure, seven trillion. And then, of course, the, the suffering on the part of innocents in Iraq, in, in Syria, and Libya, and everywhere else, who are, to this day, are still paying the price and look at Afghanistan. I mean, it's it's horrific. Uh, and uh, uh, the the uh, you know the the empire essentially uh, funnels all of its resources, eight hundred and fifty billion. That's that's a rough figure. There's actually we spend more on that when you uh, count veterans affairs and you count the nuclear weapons program, which is separate from the budget. You're close to a trillion dollars a year. Meanwhile, the United States is collapsing internally. Uh, and this is, this of course replicates the dying days of any empire. The tragedy is that as we go down, we're bringing so many people with us. But the, but the Pentagon's unaccountable. The, it is a political power in and of itself that no one, not Bernie Sanders, 
No one can confront it. Anybody, the few brave politicians who get up and speak the truth to the war industry, like Dennis Kucinich, are erased. It was the Democratic Party that he was in the House of Representatives. He didn't vote, never voted for a military appropriation bill, constantly called out the war industry, and the Democratic Party uh, redistrict his district to essentially drive him out of the House, which worked. And then when he ran last year for mayor of Cleveland, they pumped in, we don't know because it's dark money, but millions upon millions of money to defeat him. Uh, it, the only two national candidates for president that we have ever had since the end of World War II that have taken on the war industry, Henry Wallace, 1948, Roosevelt's former vice president, and George McGovern in 1972 were destroyed in a bipartisan coalition. As soon I knew McGovern. As soon as McGovern got the nomination, the hierarchy of the Democratic Party joined forces with the hierarchy of the Republican Party under Nixon uh, to make sure McGovern was uh, defeated in a landslide, as he was, with all, all the dirty tricks and everything else. So the, the, the military-industrial complex, which you're right, everyone should go back and listen to that farewell address by Eisenhower, it's un, it's not only uncontrollable, but it's a political force at this point that no, that any politician who attempts to confront, and we used to have a few decades ago figures like Proxmire and others in the Senate who at least call out waste or call out, you know, redundant weapon systems or weapon systems that cost overruns or weapon systems. That's all gone. I mean, the, the, the last Pentagon budget, uh, the Congress voted to give, uh, the, the, the Pentagon 45 a uh, billion dollars more than the Biden, uh, the Biden administration requested. It's just insane. Uh, and uh, and that's no. Uh, some people <laughs> say uh, that uh, we're being alarmist when we talk about nuclear war. I talked about it. You talked about it. Uh, but I just ask people to ponder this, Chris, and I'd like your view on it. It is ineluctable if if NATO fights Russia and is beginning to prevail, Russia will be existentially threatened and must inevitably use at least its battlefield, if not its intermediate nuclear forces. And ditto if the reverse happens. If NATO is fighting Russia and Russia is prevailing, then the... Hundreds of nuclear warheads now scattered all over Europe on American military bases would inevitably be used. And once one nuclear weapon has been fired, inevitably a second at least, and maybe many more in both directions would have to be used. Well, the danger is that now they've created what they call tactical nuclear weapons, which are low-yield nuclear weapons that uh, can devastate a city but don't devastate uh, an area the size of uh, uh, that, that uh, you know, a, a, a full-blown nuclear uh, uh, missile would. Uh, and, and so you talk about how it becomes gradual, that there's a con- kind of slow escalation in terms of the potency of the weapons that are deployed that would be the first step. But you're right. It doesn't, that you don't control it. And, and people should go back and look how close we came during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In fact, we were probably saved from nuclear war by a Russian submarine captain 
uh, who, who didn't uh, take the bait. Uh, but we had Curtis LeMay, who was the head of the Air Command, pushing Johnson, uh, I mean pushing Kennedy, to bomb, just as in later in the Vietnam War, he was pushing Johnson to use nuclear weapons in North Vietnam. So uh, the, the, it's in this, of course, we've had what the uh, scientists have just with the doomsday clock, you know, just pushed it closer and closer. You, you, we are flirting with, uh, I mean, seriously, we are flirting with total annihilation. Um, it's an extremely dangerous game. Uh, but when I mentioned before that it's not thought out, they, the consequences are not thought out. I mean, these are people who created the conflict anyway by expanding NATO uh, up to Russia's borders. When Gorbachev, I was in Eastern Europe in 89 covering the revolutions, Gorbachev wanted to build a military and economic alliance with the United States and Europe. And so did Yeltsin, and people forget, so did Putin at the beginning. But if they didn't turn, Russia wasn't willing to be an enemy, they'd, they'd make Russia an enemy because they couldn't justify the billions upon billions in arms sales to Eastern Europe in these now 14 uh, countries in, in Eastern and Central Europe that have been in, uh, joined to NATO. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's extremely short-sighted. George Kennan, the great Sovietologist, correctly before he died, called the expansion of NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany the greatest uh, diplomatic blunder in post-Cold War history. Uh, but again, that history is erased. I mean, you bring it up, but the mainstream doesn't bring it up. Uh, and, and you attempt to hold a public event to discuss these issues, and they do what they did to all of the great people, Keir Hardy and others in, in World War I, uh, who denounced the folly of the suicidal, collective suicidal folly of World War I, they're doing to you what they did to them, which is deny them a venue. Um, hopefully, you won't end up. I think Hardy didn't they put him in prison finally? Well, uh, don't rule that out, Chris. Uh, the, <laughs> um, the the situation, though, is a it's a sign of weakness, isn't it? Uh, I was making the point in a video I'll show later. Uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War, I was on mainstream television and radio more or less every single day because the mass media recognized that my point of view was shared by a significant number of people in Britain and they felt a duty, I know it sounds quaint now, uh, to at least give it house room, even if only to try and rubbish it. Uh, but they couldn't ignore it and didn't ignore it. But no one can now appear on mainstream television or radio or get a hearing in the press or, as you've rightly alluded, even get an indoor venue uh, without uh, being assailed and cancelled. This is not a sign of strength on the part of our rulers, is it? It's a sign of weakness. Well, yes, exactly, because... I think they understand how mendacious and tenuous the justifications for this perpetuation of uh, endless war in the Ukraine is. And so uh, because they're aware of that, uh, any kind of critique becomes very threatening um, because they don't really have any arguments for the perpetuation of this war that I find rational or coherent. Uh, so, yes, they've become more draconian. I will say the difference between the UK and the United States, and I was very outspoken against the 
uh, calls to invade Iraq. I'd been the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times, spent seven years in the Middle East. I was completely uh, uh, blanked out. I could not get on any mainstream. And I was listening to these yahoos who couldn't find Iraq on a map. Uh, I'm also an Arabic speaker. Uh, you know, expound upon how the Ba'athists were going to greet us as liberators and democracy was going to be implanted in Baghdad and spread outwards across the Middle East and the oil revenues were going to pay for reconstruction and endless uh, stuff that was just non-reality based. It was a complete fantasy. Uh, so you are now going through essentially what uh, those of us who were informed uh, about the Middle East attempted to do. Uh, to block the the Bush, well, it was a bipartisan uh, uh, invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but yeah, it's, it it is a sign of weakness, definitely a sign of weakness. And lastly, on that point, uh, sorry, I did say lastly. This really is lastly. Um, the same commentators, the same journalists, the same yeah. broadcasters, the same pundits, those that are still alive, that that gave us this tidal wave of guff in the run-up to the Iraq war and were proved entirely wrong. And you and I and our friends were proved entirely right. They're still going with the same guff over the war with Russia. Sure, because they're, they're essentially shills for the war industry. The war industry funds their think tanks, the war industry in some case in the United States in some cases owns the cable channels on which they appear. Uh it doesn't matter how many times they're wrong. Look, I've been dealing with these people going back to El Salvador. Robert Kagan, Elliot Abrams were in the Reagan State Department. Their entire job was to discredit everything we as reporters were reporting on the ground. They never go away. It doesn't matter they were behind the expansion of NATO. Uh they were uh, the cheerleaders for of course the debacles in the Middle East, the fiascos in the Middle East and and Ukraine. Well, they serve their masters and they're well compensated for it. And they are never removed from their platforms because they are essentially puppets. Uh, they're the pimps of war uh, and they never go away. It doesn't matter how wrong they are, how idiotic they are. Um, they're always assured a voice uh, because they dance to the tune that these warmongers play. Well, what a state we're in. I do hope that we get to see each other again on the other side. But who knows, this may be our last goodbye. Chris Hedges, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows.